What a beautiful song. Lord, in my life be glorified. In our church be glorified. This morning, Father, that is our prayer and is the prayer of my heart, Father. May you be glorified. May you be glorified and lifted high. And may your train fill this temple. Thank you, Father. Receive our offerings of praise. And you are so worthy of more than we bring. For what we bring, Father, we lift our hands to you. In praise and honor and glory to you, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Hi there, little guys. How you doing? I'm happy. I don't know about you, but I've been blessed already. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning from Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and I want to start at verse 11, but I want to uh, lay some groundwork first before we get to that. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is getting ready to go on his second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas went around on the first missionary journey, planting churches, and then they came back and reported to the church at Antioch. And then they decided they wanted to go back and revisit the churches and see how they were doing. Well, then they uh, got into this little dispute about uh, who they were going to take with them on the second journey. And John Mark kind of got pushed to the side. And it was such a heated dispute that Paul and Barnabas separated. And Paul and Silas started out on the second missionary journey to visit these churches. So they come out of this dispute in this leading into this chapter. And Paul and Silas then begin to go out and they start visiting the churches and they decide, try to go into separate places. And in some places, God's spirit would not let them go. He said, no. And it begins actually in verse 6 of the 16th chapter. And Paul and Silas passed through the territory of Phygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the word in the province of Asia. And when they had come opposite Myasia, they tried to go in Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. 
So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And there a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man from Macedonia stood pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, we at once endeavored to go on into Macedonia, confidently inferring that God had called us to proclaim the glad tidings or the gospel to them. And then we get into our text for today for the sermon. Therefore, setting sail from Troas, we came in a direct course to Samothrace, and the next day went on to Neapolis. And from there we came to Philippi, which is the chief city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We stayed on in this place some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city's gate to the bank of the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and addressed the women who had assembled there. And one of those who listened to us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a dealer in fabrics dyed in purple. She was already a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Verse 15. And when she was baptized along with her household, she earnestly entreated us, saying, If in your opinion I am one really convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and the author of salvation, and that I will be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she induced us to do it. And as we were on our way to the place of prayer on a different occasion, we were met by a slave girl who was possessed by a spirit of divination, claiming to foretell future events and to discover hidden knowledge. And she brought her owners much gain by her fortune telling. She kept following Paul and the rest of us, shouting loudly, these men are the servants of the Most High God. They announce to you the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. Then Paul, being sorely annoyed and worn out, turned and said to the spirit within her, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her owners discovered that their hope of profit was gone, they caught hold of Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities in the forum or the marketplace where the trials are held. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, they declared, these fellows are Jews and they are throwing our city into great confusion. They encourage the practice of customs which it is unlawful for us Romans to accept or observe. The crowd also joined in the attack upon them and the rulers tore the clothes off of them and commanded that they be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. And he, having received so strict a charge, put them into the inner prison in the dungeon and fastened their feet in stocks. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to pause for just a moment here. 
and kind of lay out what's happening in this, in this particular passage so far. Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and they're going down to a riverbank where there's supposed to be a prayer meeting going on. And when they arrive, they find it's a prayer meeting of women that are gathered together. And at least Lydia and probably others of that group are obedient to the message which they give. And they begin to follow Paul and begin to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. Now it's interesting to me <clears> that <throat> first of all, God begins to plant this church in Philippi. This is Philippi. And the church that's planted there will come up again in the New Testament later on in the book to the Philippians, which is the church at Philippi. The church that Paul said he loved so much, he felt so close to. The church in Philippi, or the, Philipp the letter to the Philippians, were there. I thought it was really kind of interesting that when God is starting this church in Philippi, he begins with a group of women at prayer. Did you catch that? A group of women at prayer. Now I know sometimes there are some parts of our church in the past and in, in areas and even today that kind of downplay the role of women in the church, that they can play in leadership. But here is at the beginning of the church, God is establishing a church in Philippi and he's using a woman's prayer group as the foundation for that church. Charles Malachi, or excuse me, Charles, no, it's not Malachi, it's uh, Malik. Yeah, it's Malik. Charles Malik. Many of you probably haven't heard of him. He was a... Uh, a diplomat, he died in 1987, I believe it was. Yeah, he's a diplomat. Uh, he was from Lebanon. He was a founding member of the United Nations. He wrote the Declaration of Human Rights and represented uh, Lebanon as an ambassador to the United States and also to the UN. He was also a philosopher, had a PhD from Harvard University and uh, a very influential philosopher. Uh, he had 50 honorary doctorates to his name. And I know immediately you're going to think, okay, he's from the Middle East. And in the Middle East, we have Jews that are good and Arabs that are bad. <laughs> we look at it that way so often. He's also a diplomat and he works for the United Nations. He's an international diplomat. And our thought is, well, we strike those guys off, off the top of our head, as not being important or influential. And then he was a philosopher, which is another strike against him often, inside of the church when we're looking at him. And so we tend to ignore who he is. Charles Malachi was uh, also a devout Christian not a Muslim. He was a Christian. And a tremendously influential man in the beginning of the United Nations and the work of the kingdom of God around the world. <clears throat> he spoke at uh, Wheaton College and spoke about two things in his message. 
speaking to the universities and to the church in general in the United States. He said the mission of the church down through the years has been really twofold. First, the redeeming of souls. He said we've done a marginally good job at doing that. But the second mission is the redeeming of minds. He said and that we have largely ignored. Transforming the minds from a secular mind into a mind with a Christian worldview. And Charles Malik has, has said one uh, phrase which he is well known for around the world. And he said, the fastest way to change a society, the fastest way to produce change in any society is to mobilize the women of the world. Mobilizing the women of the world. That will have the fastest and the biggest impact upon changing the directions that we go. So this morning, I would like to do this and say this to you. When God begins a work in our midst, and he has been working here, but he has been working through women at prayer in our church. And I want to celebrate the gifts and the ministry that you have. I believe that there is no distinction that God pours out his spirit upon our sons and our daughters as Joel says he will pour out his spirit and they will prophesy and minister and I want to say thank you to the women of this church for praying and for lifting up this body of believers here because that's how the church at Philippi began with a woman's prayer group and I believe God wants to begin doing wonderful things in our midst through the prayers of the women of our church and the ministry of the women of our church. Picking up again now at verse 25. Paul and Silas are in prison. But about midnight, as Paul and Silas were praying and singing, singing hymns of praise to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the very foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once all the doors were opened and everyone's shackles were unfastened. When the jailer, startled out of his sleep, saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was on the point of killing himself, because he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Then the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling and terrified, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out of the dungeon and said, men, what is it necessary for me to do that I may be saved? And they answered, Believe in and on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, give yourself up to him. Make yourself out of your own keeping or take yourself out of your own keeping and entrust yourself into his keeping and you will be saved. And this applies both to you and your household as well. And they declared the word of the Lord, that is the doctrine concerning the attainment through Christ of eternal salvation, in the kingdom of God, to him and to all who were in his house. 
And he took them the same hour of the night and bathed them because of their bloody wounds. And he was baptized immediately and all the members of his household. Then he took them up into his house and set food before them. And he leaped much for joy and exalted with all his family that he believed in God, accepting and joyously welcoming what he had made known through Christ. So Paul and Silas are in prison for preaching the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes get a little discouraged if I don't get a positive reception from people when I share the gospel with them, you know? I kind of will back off a little bit and think, well, where somebody says something to me that's a little humorous about what I've been saying, you know? I, I take that to heart sometimes and I get discouraged. Well, I look at it, I've never been beaten with rods for preaching. I've never been beaten, period, for preaching. But Paul and Silas were. And so they're in prison. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would probably also feel a little downer that I'm now in prison because I have been uh, witnessing or sharing the four spiritual laws with people or whatever method that I particularly used. I might be a little discouraged because I'm now in prison after I've been beaten. And I'm sitting there in stocks. Not stockings, stocks with my feet out there. I don't think they had any stockings on when we were there. But what do Paul and Silas do? They hold a church service. They start praying, praising God, singing, and sharing with the other prisoners who were there. After all, I can see Paul saying, hey, Silas, let's do a preach, uh, church service here. We've got a captive audience. They're not going anyplace. I mean, they're right here in front of us. So let's have a church service in the midst of this. So they have a church service. And what happens? A huge earthquake comes and destroys the prison. Opens up all their shackles. How would you like to sit in a church service like that? How would you? And there are too many church services that I've been in in North America that are like that. In fact, I can't remember one that was like that even, where that happened to. But why? Why doesn't that happen here? I don't know. But God responds. And what we have here is the beginning of this church in Philippi. The question which the jailer asks is the one I want to address today. All this other stuff has just been side issues. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean? What does it mean to believe? Because that's the question that the jailer asks. Here he is looking in, in front of him. This, uh, his whole prison has been destroyed. He's the warden of the prison. And he's expecting what would normally happen. Prisoners are going to flee once they're able to leave where they got out. But he finds out that the prisoners don't. They stay there. They stay right there. And he's going to take his own life. But Paul says, stop. Now probably he's aware of what's going on, of what Paul and Silas have been preaching and teaching. 
He probably is. It says that the whole community was stirred up and excited and knew what was going on. And he may even have been listening to Paul and Silas in the midst of their uh, cell block church service. I guess you can call it that. And his response when he sees them, everything that's happened, is what must I do? What does it mean to believe? What must I do? Christian faith stands upon the reality of God's existence. That God exists. The fact that he is there. In Hebrews it says, in chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Our faith stands on our acceptance of the fact that God exists first, that he's there, he exists. Now, and we make a mistake today, I think, uh, when we are sharing with modern people. We assume that they believe there's a God, or they accept that God exists. In reality, in my own life, and my working with younger people, I found they don't believe that. They question whether there is a God. And so when we start out assuming they believe in God and start talking to them about Jesus Christ, we make a huge mistake. We are speaking nonsense to them. And so when I begin working with people who are non-Christians, who have not been exposed to the church, <clears throat> I step back and go back to the existence of God. God is there. He exists. That's where I begin with them. And once that has been established, so they can come to the position where they can reasonably say, yeah, I see what you're saying. While you can't prove his existence, there's enough evidence that would firmly indicate that he does exist. And I start there first with them. There is a God who exists. He is real. He's there. That's where I begin. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Hmm. Am I back on now? Okay, good. <clears throat> My voice is not very strong today. <clears throat> I apologize for that. But I begin at that point that there is a God who exists. <clears throat> and then I move on to the fact that human beings are not perfect that there's something wrong with us inside. There is a moral issue that we are struggling with inside of us. And that we, uh, even if we don't say that we do not believe in absolutes, and that's a, a common phrase which is battered around or concept, which is battered around the university today, that there are no absolutes. But I found that I can work with people and lead them through that process 
where they will come to accept that there are absolutes, there are things which exist, which are absolutely true or not true. Thesis, antithesis. And that's the second position that I go to. And usually I will do it like this with a person. <clears throat> you say you don't believe that there are absolutes, absolute rights or wrongs. I say, yes, I don't. I said, okay. I'm a police officer, and uh, you're driving home today from the school or from this particular session at the restaurant where we are. And you're going down the highway. It's a 45-mile-an-hour zone. <clears throat> and you're pulled over by a police officer. And he walks up to you and said, let me see your license and registration. You say, well, why did you stop me? He said, I'm stopping you for speeding. I'm going to give you a ticket for speeding. He said, well, I wasn't speeding. I was only doing 45. I know that. You were. But I need another ticket today to meet my quota. We do have quotas. Police officers do. I need, another, I need another ticket to meet my quota. So you're going to get a ticket for speeding. Well, but I wasn't speeding. I don't care. I know that. But I need a quota. I need a ticket that will help me out. And the response, and how would you respond? And, and every time I'm talking to someone about this, they'll say, well, it's not fair. It's not right. I said, but remember, you just said that there is no absolute right or wrong. Everything's relative. So it's best for me to give you the ticket. It helps me meet my quota. That's good for me. Yeah, but it's not, well, we don't deal with right and wrong here. There are no absolutes, are there? Yes, but, but you shouldn't, a cop shouldn't act like that. Why shouldn't he? Because we have this concept of absolutes. And as I begin to introduce that in people's lives, they begin to see that, yes, they will admit there is a sense of ought that we carry about in us as human beings. People ought to behave in a certain way. And the sense of oughtness is indicating that there are absolutes, that there is an absolute behavior. And it's a very easy step then to move in that direction. And in their own lives, they will usually then come to acknowledge that they ought to live differently than they are living. They should. And so I build that relation that way with them. And then we step across to how do we explain human fallenness or our failure to live up to what we ought to do? And we move along into the area of God's solution. <clears throat> to become a Christian, we believe, first of all, to become a believer, that there is a God, that he exists. And then we come to the human problem that we, are, we do not function as we ought to function. We are morally fallen people. We're not what God wants us to be or we were created to be. We don't live up to those concepts of absolutes. And from there, we then look at, okay, so what's the solution? How do we solve this? And Paul lays it out right in front of us in our text today. God's Son, Jesus Christ. God has provided the solution to our moral problem. We don't need a new philosophy. You don't need to think in a new way. What you need to do is have a new life change. You need a Savior. 
then God has provided the solution to it. That's a very simple way. And that, to me, as I see it from our text today, and then from our working with people, is what it means to believe. It means to stand before God and say, I believe that you are there. I believe that you exist. A God who is there. And I believe that I am not what you created me to be. I am fallen. I ought to be different. I ought to live differently in the world. I ought to respond differently to people around me than I do. So where does this moral failure come from? It's from my fallenness as a believer. And how do I solve that problem? Well, I've tried and I can't. I said, I know you can't. But don't worry. God has provided the solution through his son, Jesus Christ, and brings a new life into us and takes that guilt away from us. That is what I then, is what I say it means to believe, what you need to believe. And then you take that step of casting your life. What does it mean to do that? It is like sitting down and saying, I believe that uh, the Republican Party is the best party in the world. And I believe it has the solutions to all the problems in the, in the country that we have right now. So I go out and join the Democratic Party and vote in the Democratic primaries. That would be foolish. It would be inconsistent in my life, wouldn't it? No, I would go out and join that Republican Party. And I would vote for Republican candidates. I would become a Republican. And as a believer, it means this the same way. If I believe that God exists and that Jesus Christ is the solution to my moral dilemma, that I need him in my life, then I join the Christian Party. And I support what the Christian party is doing, what God is doing. And I trust my future into his hands as the Lord of my life. Now, for many of you today, what I'm talking about is going to seem very uh, trivial or perhaps uh, not applicable to your lives. But, I'm but when I am working with non-believers in particular, or people who are circling the edges, I begin at that level with ideas and concepts that they can understand. I don't start with scripture verses because scripture is meaningless to a non-believer. It's just another story. It's just another book. If you don't believe in the foundation that God exists, that he's real, that he's there, scripture is meaningless to you. It's, just, it's dismissed quickly. And so I begin with ideas and concepts that speak to their particular stage of being where they are. And I then lead them you know, down that road to a place where they come to an understanding or they're willing to take that step. And I've found through following Christ and working in street ministries and working in church ministries and uh, 
being involved for 50 years now, over 50 years now in the kingdom of God. That the big issue is not whether God exists. You can pretty much move a person quickly to that level, that God exists. The really tough issue for people today is taking that step of commitment. The question that troubles them is, what will this cost me? What will God ask of me? What's this going to entail as a change in my life? That's the big thing to get over with them. See, the trouble is not today is not that people don't believe in God. They really do, deep inside. Sometimes it's covered over, but it's there. The real question is, how much will it cost me to take that step, to make that commitment, to walk after and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And I want to leave you with this one thought. This has been kind of maybe a strange sermon for you. It's been strange for me because my notes are up here. I'm not using them. I'm not going where I had thought I should go today. When we are dealing with people on the outside who don't know Jesus Christ, or people who are inquirers or circling around, we need to remember that the gospel, the plan, who, who God is, what he has done, and what he asks of us will be offensive to people. It will be. There are people who are going to say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I, I'm not ready for that. I still want to do my own thing. I still want to have fun. I still believe this. I, I don't want to take those risks. The gospel will make them uncomfortable and will be offensive to them. But the way I present the gospel should not offend anyone. My spirit should be sweet, as I call it. I should be open to reach out to people. And they should sense that I really care about them. They should. And that's hard to fake, so I would ask you to begin to learn to listen and to care about people and get beyond that surface that's there, that facade that's put up, that defensive facade. Get beyond it. Listen to them and dig into their hearts and listen and care about them. And then they will respond to that. They will. The gospel may be offensive, it may make people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable at times what God asks of me. It does. But the way I present the gospel to people should not be offensive. I should not be beating on them and hammering at them and beating them with scripture over the head when they're not ready for it yet should be loving them and listening to them and 
gently walking them through, correcting their misconceptions of what the church is like and what, what God is like, correcting those misconceptions that they have and leading them down their path to the point of where they will ask, okay, what's it going to take? What do I have to do to take that step? What do I have to do? And I'll share this with you. You will be surprised at how open people can be when they sense that you love them, that you care about them, and that you're not defensive when they question you. What does it mean to believe? Do you know? As God calls us as a church to step out, it means also to trust him and his provision that as we walk out, that God will walk with us. Whether we are looking at uh, calling a new pastor, whether we're looking at uh, expanding a, pro a ministry program someplace, or whether I'm looking at reaching across the street to the neighbor who's there. God will walk with you as you step out in him today. Father, thank you for these jumbled thoughts which you have uh, given to me today, Lord. May your word and your truth come through them and may the parts of them that are adverse with me be set aside and dismissed and may they not influence anyone in a wrong way. Thank you, Father, for you are faithful. You are faithful. You always have been and always will be. Amen.